Welcome to the latest edition of Tampering, the NBA's insider podcast. I'm Joe Varden. With me, as always, is our NBA insider, Sam Amick. And we are joined today by a very special guest who can help us get to the bottom of all the crazy shit going on today in the United States of America. I'm, of course, talking about Dan Pfeiffer of Pod Save America and the Obama White House. Sam, Dan, hello, boys. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for yeah, thanks for being here. Um, you know, we wanted to uh, you know this is going to be basketball, and we're going to talk about you know whatever we're going to talk about. Um, I'm interested, and we'll get into it. You know, Dan is kind of our resident super fan, uh, among other things, and so I want to get your thoughts on if you would watch basketball in August. Um, so we'll get to that. I think the the, the question that I had first is. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the top, you uh, were a, a key member uh, of the Obama administration for a number of years, and I think you were in the White House um, during some of the flu stuff, maybe some of the Ebola stuff. Um, can you, I guess, off the top, was there ever any discussions then or consideration, and as far as like having to take a look at sports and having to slow down uh, attendance at sports because of those things. And did you, did you guys ever talk to the leagues about anything like that? We did not. They were very different situations. Ebola was something that was was happening in Africa. There were some Americans who were affected and some concerns about people traveling from the affected regions of the United States, but it was minuscule compared to what we're dealing with right now. H1N1 was very, which was the swine flu, which, which happened in 2009 was also different in the sense that we had, there's there were more protocols to deal with an influenza epidemic because we prepare we do every year right because every year you don't know what the influenza will look like is it going to look like the previous year's flu or something totally different and so we never got to that point I think one of the reasons it's been dangerous for people in the media and politics to compare this to the flu is that this is a much more dangerous situation because we do not have a it's not as easy to come up with a vaccine for for something completely different like coronavirus, and that you have drugs like Tamiflu, which can really, which you can, which already exists, you can ramp up production that can help with the flu. So we never had to cross that bridge, and I can only imagine that. And I'd be actually, I'd say, I'd be very curious to know whether the White House had any conversations with the sports leagues about closing, shutting down these events. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you would think just based on the, um, I guess, sort of the cantankerous relationship uh, between the the current White House and at least the NBA and the NFL. I mean, how I can't imagine just given the sort of the political theater that that the current president used against the the NFL that there would be any discussion whatsoever uh, there. And and then to the extent that the leagues were speaking with with 
the states, you know, various governor's offices in Ohio, um, maybe Illinois, you know, places like that where they were starting to shut down and 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 uh, call for a limit on gathering on the number of people gathering would be would be really low. You know, Sam and I write for a like we work for a company that deals solely in sports. We have no other income other than than writing and talking about sports. Like there's no Disney component, there's no theme park, there's sports are it for us. And so I, I need to tread lightly when I ask this, but right now, do you care about sports? You know, if you had told me a week ago that all basketball was going to go away and the NBA would go on and March Madness would be canceled and my fantasy basketball team would be gone and all those things, I would have been in a mild state of panic about what I would do with my life. But it does seem quite small right now. That's a whole podcast right, right there. And so I do like it like do I would I love to be home and have there be NBA games that could be conducted in a complete safe way where no one's health would be at risk? Absolutely. But just I've I, I think the stakes of, you know, of of the sports in this context, I miss it less than I did before and I was basically mainlining it like just between podcasts and reading and games and all of that and having even I have more time and one of the things that was filling up the limited time I had is now gone and I miss it less than I thought I would because of just the concerns about what's happening in the country I think it feels smaller than uh, the moment we're in well first of all Dan as much as I appreciate you gracing us with your presence for a second time I got to be honest I, I'm hitting refresh on on the pod archive it's been four days what the hell are you doing man what what is happening it's, here <laughs> it's 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 actually being recorded in a couple hours oh, uh john john and oh, okay. tommy crooked media is put in place a work from home pro, uh program last week because of yep just everything that's happening of course and john john and tommy are going to put out a new one uh they're recording in a couple hours and it'll be out this afternoon and we'll be back on our regular schedule on thursday sure. um you know it's it's a, it's a, like as you guys, as we all know, as we sit here in our various homes or elsewhere doing this, podcasting is a business that is very amenable to working from home, but it does yep. require some people on our end, at least, to come in, in the studio and stuff like that. And so the company's gotcha. thinking about the best ways to do that. And then well, I mean, I, I, I kid, but it's in that same theme of, of people having time on their hands. And, and certainly I love your guys' pod, and it's one of the many ways to to kind of pass the time during the day. And, and I'm, you know, obviously at the democratic debate last night. So you guys have plenty to talk about. Um, but to keep it a little bit closer to what Joe had mentioned, uh, I, I did want to throw this at you as a guy who enjoys the league, a guy who likes the NBA hit the rewind button a little bit about a week. And to that moment in time when the NBA, like every other sports league, uh, that was in action was having to figure out in real time how to, handle this thing that was unprecedented. And so to give you a quick uh, little bit of color about, you know, my end of it and, and what I was looking at, what I was doing, I, I went to the Kings Pelicans game. I want to say it was last Wednesday, whenever that was the very last game that was, that was supposed to happen, you know, fans in the stands, uh, 17,000 plus um, they find out right before tip off that official Courtney Kirkland had been in Salt Lake city two nights before had potentially come into contact with, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, they shut that game down. Now, as you know, at that time, the the league had decided to play games without fans, and that was going to be the next step until you know everything changed when they they found out about Rudy. But as a guy who enjoys the league, but also a guy who knows 
you know, exactly what's happening all over the globe. What was your opinion and your perspective of even the, the mere fact that games were still happening and, and just in general, the way that the NBA had navigated these waters? Well, you know, I my perspective on this is I live in the Bay Area and the city of San Francisco, you know, put out guidance that basically to the Warriors to not to play without fans at the beginning of the week. And the Warriors had, had actually resisted it to begin with and then eventually agreed. And, it, and I thought I was watching that carefully because one, you know, it's sort of like once one team does it, then there's a domino effect. And right. And, you know, I think my up until Rudy Gobert, um, I, you know, my assumption had been that they would play the season with no fans and the and the March Madness would happen with no fans. And I had actually been watching on the day it all canceled because I'm a Georgetown alum. I've been watching Georgetown play St. John's in the Big East tournament in a relatively packed Madison Square Garden. And I thought that I was th- thinking to myself, this is probably the last game that will be played with fans. And and I think so I say a couple things about this one. I was I have to say I was shocked that the season was suspended you know be, just because like that is such a huge thing like what, moving it without fans is obviously a, dr- a drastic step but it keeps right. at least a large portion of the NBA related economy going right there are games on TV there is content for people to write about there is things to podcast about and to go that quickly I mean, ultimately, it's obviously the right decision given what happened with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell that there was literally no way to keep people safe, right? The only way to keep people safe is to have people stay home. And so, I mean, it's obviously the right decision. I Going back to the point about the leagues and the, you know, in the relationship with the Trump White House, I have to say that I had, because this all happened the night Trump was giving his official Oval Office address, and I can imagine if we were in the white house, there would have been some conversation between like, we would have gotten a heads up before that happened because the relationship would be such that they wouldn't want the president to be, to do this speech and then find out afterwards that the season had been suspended. And I mean, it, it does the fact that, you know, NBA and March Madness are gone speaks to just how serious a situation this is. I mean, even after nine 11, we played sports, right? The world series happened. Um, Football games happen. I remember going to a Washington football professional football game uh, a couple of weeks after 9-11. And here now, you know, a major part of American sports culture is gone for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we say on here all the time, you know, we're not doctors or we're not public policy experts. Um, you kind of are a little. So I want to get get into this a little bit more. Um Sam and I, you know, we were talking about this last week and at the time I had just come back from San Francisco. I was at the, the, you know, the Warriors games. I was at the Thursday game where Steph came back and then I was in LA. Um, and I was kind of, I don't know if it's just because I was in the arenas at the time, but you know, I, I was saying, ah, I, all this talk about kicking out the fans and, and canceling games is crazy. Like we're going to, we're going to wreck the economy and, you know, Sam was Sam was a little bit further along than I was at that time. Like, kind of talking about yeah, this is this is actually probably pretty serious. Um, at what point? At what point did you kind of realize that it that this was serious to the point where we probably had to do something? And you know, just because. Then I guess we also need to talk a little bit about. 
you know, it just seems to make perfect like public relations and probably medical sense to have just shut down the season at this point. But how long do you have to stay out now? Like what, what, what's the, what's the next step? To answer the, the first part of your question, I was actually on uh book tour last week and I had events in, all across the Midwest. I was in Milwaukee on Monday, uh, Minnesota on Tuesday, and then I was supposed to be traveling that for the next week. And when I, I left San Francisco airport on Monday morning and it was like a completely normal airport, I had like a 6am flight and it was packed. Like it would be on any Monday and Flew to Milwaukee. Everything seemed completely normal. People were out. On Tuesday morning, my wife called me and strongly encouraged me to cancel the rest of the events, which is a relatively complicated situation given you had people you know, had bought books and were planning to come. But by Tuesday, when I flew to Minnesota, the airport was a ghost town. There was just no one there. And it, like, it just dramatically changed like in a 24-hour period. And you know, when I came... And I, and I and I came home and I which was the the right it seemed like a, a an aggressive action at the time and even some of the venues were resistant to doing that and you know they would obviously be illegal by CDC guidelines as of uh, yesterday and like and so I that's it sort of really was you know to me the NBA suspending the season was the moment when I realized this was right like this though this is a gigantic deal that is much, even bigger than anything bigger than what we dealt with in the white house you know i think the question for the i'm very you know, i actually want to hear from you guys as to whether this nba season will ever actually finish because you know if you this you know the goldman sachs did this call for investors yesterday and not that they are public health experts but based on the data they look they look at we are two one, you know we are 7 to 8 weeks away from peak and that means that we are legitimately having um, games, and if players are going to be off for two to three months, how do you have a season, you know, last bit of the season that happens in August? I think fans would most certainly watch, but like how, like, is that safe for the players? Is that like, what quality, what quality of product are you putting out there? How do we even like sort of reset the season after being off for so long? Cause obviously we've, the NBA has dealt with lockouts before where you start later, but this is like never, I mean, that I can imagine something where you just take a whole bunch of time off when, when you're, when you've been in this conditioning program to ramp up to the playoffs where you're just going to go cold Turkey now. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question, Dan. The, the lockout parallel is interesting because the obvious difference there is just the timing. You know, you, the lockout in 2010, that, you know, that affected the least important part of the NBA schedule and it was tailor made really to kind of prove a point that, you know, for years and years and years within NBA circles, people would always say that the season doesn't really start until Christmas. That's when mainstream America and the world starts really paying attention. And that bared out that year. And so within that, you had players, like you said, trying to figure out how to train. And and when you talk to them about that experience and to trainers and coaches, it's the uncertainty that drove them nuts. When you go to the gym, during the day and you just don't have any sort of uh, timetable in your head at all about when you might be out there. But at least it was on the front end of the schedule. Now you've got, you know, 80, 90 percent of the schedule behind you. You've got a lot of stakes. You've got teams like the Bucks that are trying to have a historic year, the Lakers all the way down the line. Um, personally, right now, and this could change, I don't know how we're going to have a season. And one of the things specifically that that keeps tugging at me 
is the testing component. And so to this point, and again, it could change, the NBA does not have any plans to test all 450-ish, you know, around there of its players. And, and I'm puzzled by this because, A, first of all, I know testing is a massive problem, uh, you know, in, in this country. And I can personally attest to that. I had a few symptoms, you know, about a week and a half ago, and there was, I was getting nowhere near a test. You just can't unless you are severe uh, or unless you can tell somebody that you were in, in touch with somebody who had coronavirus. Now, how do you get back on the court if you can't have a baseline, if you can't say that we are clean, that all of our players are clean? Now, I know that could change. You test on a Monday. By Tuesday, what are you supposed to do? Test again? Um, for those reasons, I don't I don't quite see how the machinations could work. And then, you know, the other part, again, is on the training front, you've got just a lot of uh, uncertainty. I talked the other day to Steph Curry's trainer, Brandon Payne, his personal guy who's based out of North Carolina. And Brandon was breaking it down, talking about how, like, for one, Steph's a unique situation because of, you know, all the rehab he did the last six months with his hand. And he was so excited to get back on the court. And, and now, you know, he's in a holding pattern again. But um, these guys don't know what to do. I, and I'm just not seeing it. Uh, and I think because the CDC put that eight-week, you know, advisory out that will probably become a mandate, um, that's pushing the calendar back quite a bit. Um, so unless the testing thing changes to me, you know, I don't know how to do it. So I think the testing thing probably will change, right? I mean, you know, we're talking at least eight weeks here now where you can't – or. Like you said, it, it'll probably become a, a mandate that you can't do anything with, with groups larger than 50. I feel like somewhere in that eight weeks, we're going to get a handle on, on the testing component of this. Well, and, and, and I could you know, to be rude, and I apologize, just to put a quick, quick, finer point, because I left out the most important part. Donovan Mitchell just okay. did an interview with Gordon, uh, Good Morning America this morning where he talked at length about being asymptomatic. And that's something I've been in touch with the mm-hmm. league about where they have <coughs> – excuse me. They have said that they don't have plans on testing everybody, partly because of the lack of availability of the test. So, you know, hypothetically, not even hypothetically, Donovan Mitchell, had this not been discovered and had the shutdown not happened, could have gone around infecting, you know, all sorts of players left and right with no symptoms. And so that speaks to the whole idea of how, you know, how do you get a, a handle on this? Yeah. And so I think that's, so we've got this eight week period, like testing's going to improve. Um, we're going to, or we're going to have more access to it. And in the meantime, it feels like these NBA teams, for whatever reason, have had greater access to the tests. And so far, and it's just so far, I fully, fully understand that so far, um, we have three players, uh, who have, who, who have it, um, that we know of. And like, what if that number doesn't grow? What if in a span of two weeks, where at least one player, Rudy Gobert, had it, and then Donovan Mitchell had it. We actually we can't even say which what the order was there. Um, but 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 in a span of two weeks, with all these games going on, um, that literally only three players contracted it, uh, and then their health like nothing happened to their health, um, which is not a guaranteed. I think you know the more you read about this, um, I think the symptoms can be a little bit more severe even for healthier people than we were initially told uh, there's still a large component of people who have it and don't even know because of the, the symptoms are mild. But I think you read about more and more cases where that d- turns out to not be the case. But whatever. We, got, we get better testing. The infection rate from that two-week period is actually fairly low. Um, the collective country is losing its mind, uh, bored out of its mind. Um, 
I suppose I could see a scenario. I, I could where we get everybody together. Like, uh, you know, our friend at ESPN, Brian Winhurst has been talking about this, um, getting getting the whole league or the whole playoffs together in one at one site um kicking out the fans just getting it done so we can finish this season and start anew with the new league calendar you know starting on christmas all of that um but i think sam and dan i think this would take a huge buy-in from the players because let, let's say let's say everything i said com- comes into play and the infection rate was low and these guys don't really get that sick um, it still comes down to what are the players comfortable with? Are they comfortable with essentially quarantining themselves from their families for the duration of that playoff? Because that's how this, the disease spreads like to the public in general if, it, if it's still bouncing around in the NBA and that's, that's how you would keep it out of the NBA. And then are they comfortable with the risk, um, which if what I'm saying bared out to be true, would be fairly low. Um, but, but are they comfortable with that? So, you know, I guess I'm a little more optimistic than Sam, but, but yeah, I mean, my thing is just that the science doesn't bear out that it's only going to be those three guys. It's, you know, I mean, those, that doesn't fit with the numbers at all. And the chances are that there's quite a few more out there. And then, you know, um, and I shouldn't make light of anything, but I have to admit, I chuckled a second ago. If this is any indication about where the players' heads are at, uh, our other colleague, Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports, just reported that the union and the league have come to an agreement that during this hiatus that uh, drug testing will be suspended. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so they, they got to live, I guess, during this time. Um, so I just there, there's so many layers to that. I mean, the, the neutral site thing is interesting, um, you know, and if you if again, you just need clarity. You need to be able to authoritatively say uh, what the status is of your employees, of your players, and work out from there if you have any hope of, of putting something together. And I think the scary thing for the NBA is if this follows the trajectory of previous influenza epidemics, it could get quiet in the summer and then come roaring back in the fall. H1N1 got worse in the fall um, of 2009. And so that like that's going to be the question. The things for like, the NBA is obviously logistics, just like how do you do this? And the second is legal liability, not just for the players, but for all of the people who have to put on even a neutral site single, you know, neutral site playoff or whatever it is. Like that is hundreds of pe- of people who would have to be involved, you know, just referees and scorekeepers, but people to you know, trainers and everyone else. And it's just like, are you willing to take the legal liability? And then I think the other question for the NBA is, do you end this season with the hope of starting next season closer? You're going to have, or are you closer to when it would normally start? You know, if you get lucky on uh, when, you know, if this comes back in the fall, because if you obviously, you know, I think if you pointed out, if you delay this thing and you play it in August, then I assume the next season isn't starting until Christmas or the next year. And now you have, two seasons that are off kilter and strange and will always have some weird asterisks on them in the record book. And it's, I think it's a lot of really hard questions for the NBA and with a lot of very serious economics and the players are the ones who have the, you know, either have, I don't know, are they getting, they're getting paid throughout this process, correct? 
Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah, they just they received their paychecks yesterday for whatever the you know whatever the last period they covered, and it looks like they'll be paid for the rest of the season. Yeah, and it's the people on the it's everyone else who doesn't necessarily get paid, which is you know the, they're the most important people. You know, this is not happening without them and all the people on the periphery of the NBA economy, whether they work in arenas or they work in media or. They work at the networks who are who put these things on. All of those people, or they work at the businesses outside of the arenas that you know you know need the attendance to you know pay the bills. You know, all of those people don't have the same. Oh yeah, financial security. Well, I mean, Chase Center's uh, Chase Center is a great example of that since that's your backyard, Dan. I mean, yep. as you've seen, you know, they they built up the whole area around Chase Center. I actually had lunch a few weeks ago at that dumpling joint for the first time, and. Like all of those businesses, certainly. I mean, there's there's very little foot traffic there that's that, you know in, independent of a game. And I mean, that's across the country. Obviously, with restaurants getting shut down, or at least you know kind of loosely populated, um, that stuff is tough for sure. So let me ask you this, Dan, since you brought it up um, again, I brought it up first, talking about moving the schedule back and playing all the way into August. I mean. You know, Sam and I can talk about how we would feel about sitting inside buildings until August um, and what that's like, uh, you know, on our schedules in terms of being able to have summer vacations with our kids and whatever. I mean, you know, the population at large doesn't care about that. Um, but as a fan, do you want to watch basketball in August instead of November? Yes, because I watch basketball in August instead of like, yeah, I want to watch it all the time. Like I am not a good test case for the average fan because my worst summers are the years when there's no Olympic and no world championship in the summer. I mean, I watch the basketball tournament <laughs> during the summer, right? I watch, uh, okay. you know, so I like, I will watch AAU games on when you guys air them on ESPN. So I like, I'm not a good example. If there was, I would, I would go for, uh, 365 days a year worth of basketball. Um, and so, but I, I think that, you know, whether obviously I don't think you have the same attendance. August is the dead period for everything. I mean, even Ponce of America, which is looking at much small, you know, a fraction of the numbers that any one single NBA game does. We don't tour in August because it's hard to do it. People don't release books in August. So it would definitely have, I mean, obviously better than zero, but you, you're just going to lose people, particularly if August is the first month you can travel. If everyone has been putting, you know, family, visiting family, vacations, et cetera, on hold for six months because of all the various restrictions. Well, and within that too is that. I mean, Joe and I both, Dan, are, are supposed to be uh, heading to Tokyo for the Olympics, and certainly I'm starting to think that's not going to be the case. There, yeah, there is no way that's right. Happening. I know, but it seems like a matter of time until <clears throat> until that gets shut down. But I mean, you know, it's impossible to imagine they do the Olympics. You just like that is a recipe for disaster. Let's take people from countries. They right. do not have let's take people from countries where the disease is an outbreak, send them to one place with people who are from countries who where it is not an outbreak, and then send them all home. It, it right. just seems insane to imagine. Right, right, right. So I you know, I know we we try to, you know, for the sake of listeners and readers, Joe, um, you know, not this is not a political yep. podcast, but I'll be honest with you. I'm also sitting home and I and I I'm I'm less focused on hoops these days than I am the world. For obvious reasons, and we got Dan Pfeiffer on the pod. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't <clears throat> get your two cents, Dan, on just the, the latest um, impact of all of this on the political process. And and this is obviously your bailiwick, and and you know you can give us kind of the shorter version here. But we had the debates last night. Joe Biden's out front. Um, 
by a fairly healthy margin, it seems. But what has the impact, do you think, been not only on that part of the political process, but on uh, the president's standing and and obviously a, a ton of well-deserved criticism for the way that, you know, that he's handled this process? What's the fallout here as we sit here in, in mid-March and the impact that, that this crisis has had on that front? Well, I think I'll deal with the primary first, which is, you know, we have a, there are a series of elections tomorrow um, where if people turn out at in Ohio. Yeah, in Ohio, in uh, in Florida, in Illinois, and elsewhere, and if any if people turned out at the normal rate, a, a polling place would violate CDC guidelines uh, at any given moment because there'd be more than fifty people gathering there. And so, I would be very curious to see what happens more. Obviously, a number of the states involved have uh, vote by mail, so some people will be you know some people will at least be able to cast their ballot without having to. To anything more than driving their car next to a mailbox and sticking their arm out the window, um, but it, like it, it's hard to imagine that people are going to turn out anywhere near they would, and it sort of freezes the election, the primary election where it was, which is with Biden with an essentially insurmountable lead. And the debate last night was that CNN held between Biden and Bernie was incredibly bizarre. I mean, just no audience, two people standing six feet from each other. Anything right. that wasn't about coronavirus felt discordant to the moment, at least to myself as I was watching it. And and we'll have to see, you know, what happens long term politically with regards to the president is, you know, is very is a is a very, is an open question, right? Like we just do not know. You know, his most important uh, or his strongest asset for reelection was the economy. We're now looking potentially. We're obviously looking at a the very, very real likelihood of a recession, at least for some portion of this year, it's going to, many people are going to suffer financially. The, you know, what a bill, what the president and, and Republicans and Democrats in Congress can do to soften that blow for families and help stabilize the economy will dictate a lot of what the November election looks like. But even that feels, you know, isn't it's, I've run around the country telling everyone it's the most important election in American history, and even that feels somewhat small to what we're dealing with right now. I mean, this is the biggest change to American life since nine eleven, and right. and it happened. You know, like nine eleven, this this happened so fast that you we just we kind of woke up on Thursday morning after the NBA was canceled, the NCAA canceled, people are not it's just not many people stopped leaving their homes, and it, we're living in a different. America than we were before. And every, and a lot of what we took for granted is gone. And, you know, I don't, no one can predict the, um, what the political aspects of it are, but this is a, you know, it's a, it is obviously a health crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's also a political crisis for everyone involved. And we'll see where we are in the fall. But if the response does not get better and more disciplined and more specific, that is a, gigantic problem for the president. The one thing I would say, I, was, I spent some time, remember Sunday night, I was sitting at home and I miss like my days in the White House sometimes and being more actively involved in politics. I was sitting at home with my wife and daughter when a week ago Sunday when the market, uh, when they had to stop trading on the market because things were so bad and thinking if I was still working in the White House, I would I would have been in a meeting at that point at you know nine o'clock Eastern time or whatever it was. And I was trying to think mm-hmm. about what, you know, what were the things we would be doing Right. In addition to all, you know, the public health steps and trying to expand the testing, you know, one thing that I remember during H1N1, the President Obama did a lot was use the bully pulpit to try to 
to model good behavior for people. Like he did videos about how you wash your hands and, and sneezing into your knee, into your elbow as opposed to into your hand and all the steps that public health officials recommend. And I think if we were there now, the, the, you know, our white house staff that worked with the sports leagues would be encouraging, um, NBA players and others to, you know, use their platforms to commute, to tell people to stay home or to wash their hands or not touch their face. And that's a place where I think the players could have a real impact on the people who are flooding the bars in the, in the States and cities where those bars are still open. Right. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there and I, I don't personally listen to much of, of what the current president says about anything, but if I wanted to kind of pass the buck a little bit on my own sort of just casual attitude towards this last week, I guess it was, you know, absence, the bully pulpit telling me that this is a big deal um, and just kind of being out there in the world kind of on my own, um, naive to some of the things that were going on behind the scenes and not feeling sick myself. Like, you know, if there was, if there had been someone telling everybody for weeks, like, hey, this is actually kind of serious, you might want to pay attention to it. I mean, you know, I think <laughs> I think that that would be a way to have headed off some of this. Um, you know, uh, Dan, most of my uh, political journalism career was spent um, in Ohio. I mean, I, I did cover your reelect in twelve, but that was it was from an Ohio perspective. Um, so, so my day to day was covering a Republican administration. And so at the time, uh, that's when tax cuts were a big deal and people would scream about tax cuts and sort of the people I, recover, I was covering every day would, would, would retort by calling this class warfare. You're not allowed to talk about – you know, don't talk about class warfare, this, that, and the other. And while I'm, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, some of that I'll admit like has kind of soaked into my own psyche that like I feel a little bit less comfortable than I may have before – telling other people how to spend their money. All of that is a long prerequisite to this. Uh, in the NBA right now, some owners and some players are kicking in money to cover lost wages for arena workers. And uh, here with the Cavs, on the same day, you had uh, owner Dan Gilbert uh, pledge right away to cover the the lost wages for the arena workers during whatever missed games. And then Kevin Love kicked in a hundred grand and players kinda around the league kind of started following that. In Milwaukee, where you were on Monday, um, the reigning MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, he, I think he I think he pledged a hundred thousand and then the players there kind of started to fund. And the 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 majority owner, Mark Lazary, um, I think f said he would match uh, Giannis's contribution, and then they said, "Well, we'll match all the players' contributions on the Bucks." But my question to you is: Mark um, is a major Democratic Party donor, and he is actually, I guess, the def if we called Dan Gilbert the host for the 2016 convention here for the Republicans, um, we'd have to call Mark the de facto host for the the 2020 convention for the Democrats. And he's he to me he seemed way behind on this. Um, you know, as a billionaire, 
not immediately kind of rushing to the foreground here and saying, we've got the workers' wages covered. And that seems to be a very easy, very low-hanging fruit, like key core democratic policy. And he seemed way behind on this. And I don't, you know, maybe you've been following this part, maybe you haven't, but but how would you have advised him or how, how do you think he's kind of handled this, like just given his role with the DNC this year? Well, I, you know, I, I know Mark uh, from his his time in politics and I worked with his son in the white house and played pickup basketball with his son for years. Who's an excellent pickup basketball player um, as Mark is uh, the, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't followed the Milwaukee thing carefully. I think, you know, the, the most charitable thing I will say about to all the team owners, whether it is a Democrat like Mark Lazary or, you know, some of the Republicans who, you know, who own other teams or whatever it is, is this happened incredibly quickly. And you basically went from, normalcy to games without fans to no season in like a 36 hour period. And ultimately what matters is what people do to help these workers with who, you know, the people who work in the arena who are, who depend on this income to live and they do, and they will not have it for an unforeseen amount of time. And I, I think it is, it says something a little bit about the economics or about just sort of – it seems wrong to me that the players, as wealthy as they are, are the ones doing this. You would think the team – like you have very wealthy players, very incredibly wealthy owners in a very, very financially successful league and that between the three of them, they should be able to have a blanket policy that says we're going to do this for everyone. And I do understand there's some complications in it because it's harder when you when the team does not own the arena entirely. Or other things happen there. And so I remember reading from one of the teams that that was one of the complications that they were trying to figure out. Um, but I think everyone has to do this. It's the right thing to do for the workers. It's the right thing to do for the league generally. And I think um, everyone, I, did, I you know, I think everyone's got to, the te- for the, the places where I hope the players step up and put pressure on the owners and the cities where that is, they have not yet committed to this. Well, and I'm I'm with you, Dan, a little bit as far as um, and this is partly just a testament to my general style and nature and personality is like, and it, it doesn't always fit all that well with my media job. Is is I understand the frustration in some circles that you know there hasn't been a forceful announcement from all 30 teams that we are going to cover everything. I also have a healthy respect for the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that social media inevitably means or inherently means that everybody's overreacting to everything all the time. So, you know, Giannis, it's fairly straightforward for him to come out and announce, I'm going to pledge this amount of money. And whether it's Lazary or somebody else, and then my neck of the woods with the Kings, for example, you know, they worked March out with their workers and they have March covered. And and it was a weird thing for me because I had actually reached out to them trying to get clarity on what they were doing. And to that point, they had made no public announcements. And they were getting criticized in some circles because every team that hasn't spoken up was then everybody saying, where you at on this? You know, and it's everybody wants it to have happened yesterday. And they shared with me that March was covered and we're still working our way through April. And the back and forth privately that I had with the Kings official was, all right, well, I don't really want to report that it's just, you know, that, that I assume it's going to happen for April. Um, and they said, you know, can you, can you just give us a minute here? And, some of these arenas have workers who are not, you know, under the umbrella of the team. You know, they're contracted out separately. Um, there are things to work through. My my stance is going to be 
I'm going to give it, you know, a week or so. We will take a final tally to see, you know, uh, which of these owners is the emperor with no clothes and probably the guy in New York, although I think they announced something <laughs> yesterday. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's the cynical assumption is that James Dolan's going to be a terrible human being on this front. And we'll see if that bears out. Um, but, you know, I'm willing to give them a little bit of time. I kind of and, and this is I think I'm in the minority. It has irritated me a little bit that. Rather than just respect, a lot of people respecting and celebrating what these players have done, which is incredible, that it just immediately became like this open door to uh, to kill the owners because, uh, you know, I just I, I think we can compartmentalize those things. The players need to be applauded. Uh, they don't have to do any of this stuff. And then let's take stock of the owners when it's all said and done and see, you know, which ones are leaving their workers out in the cold. That's right. And I think it's, it is not to take away from what anyone has done or to excuse anything that someone hasn't done. It is one thing to put out, you know, a press release or a tweet that says we're going to donate $100,000. The set, the harder part is figuring out how you put the money in the hands of the people who need it. Right. That is a, it is a, it's a relatively complicated issue point, a relatively complicated endeavor when the people who work there are not employees of the team. Right. And so I think it's, I think it is right that, People should pressure every, to ensure that everyone does it, but we have to give some people time to do it. And and if in a few days here or by the end of this week, there are teams that have not done it, then that is uh, then they should be held to account for that publicly. And I think they'll and by the players on that team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I th- I think one thing that is kind of a a good sign of of I guess the like the general progression of our society is that this became a thing so fast. Um, I could see ten years ago something like this happening, and 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 the the conversation about well, what happens to the hourly workers losing their wages at the arenas? Maybe that that wouldn't have been the first thing that just the general you know public or general Twitter mob or even just the players themselves, whatever that that wouldn't have been like almost the first thing they talked about. But I mean, this became a thing. Let's see. They shut the league down on Wednesday, right? And I, I'm pretty sure this was a discussion by Thursday. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's really fast. Well, but again, the if yeah. you're if you're the owners, you probably are. I mean, it, this was not the intent, but the players are the ones who I think unintentionally put the pressure on the owners because the second the players started making these announcements, the immediate leap was then to look at the owners, put the spotlight on them, and say, "Where the hell are you at?" Yeah, I think so. I think it's also just, I mean, this is just as an aside, you know, when you talk about some of these things, like Dan Gilbert just gets, you know, he gets run over for it. Um, just for, I mean, whether it's visiting, visiting the White House while Trump's been in there, or, you know, just some of the, the stuff, um, you know, with with uh, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, or I mean, that's the name of the arena, but his, his companies and sort of how he built his wealth and all that. And then so he is he was actually literally the first owner who did this. And it kind of maybe people noticed, maybe they didn't. And then later that evening, Kevin comes out with, you know, a hundred grand, which is way less than what, you know, any owner who's going to actually have to cover this, what it is. But I just think, you know, kind of like what you're saying, Sam, I mean, just the Kevin doing it first as a player is what really brought attention to it. What about the Sixers? We're just going to go down the line. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Not as owners. Uh, You know, I just, it's fun. Um, It's fun to have Dan, uh, Dan on here. And he is, of course, a huge 
Sixer fan and we've been talking oh, about the serious about stuff. Right. And then, you know, in the middle of, uh, of all that, I'm sure, because we haven't had him on in almost a year, I'm sure he wants to come on here and tell us everything that has frustrated him all year about the Philadelphia 76ers. Well, before Dan it, chimes in, I got to ask him, did you, Dan, did you happen to hear um, the Jimmy Butler, J.J. Redick podcast recently? I have I have heard the clips from I've seen the clips from it on Instagram and it is uh, I have not been commuting anywhere recently so I am behind <laughs> but uh, I the most the most uh, notable things uh, I have or I have at least the, th- the things that th- that JJ and this and the Ringer found most notable I have heard uh, yeah it's a good listen I'm both I it makes me it gives me a lot of anxiety to have to listen to it uh, <laughs> because it's a, it'll be much like this season which is just a massive amount of painful frustration that has uh, existed all year, all year long. Um, and look, I have been a Sixers fan my whole life. My, I grew up in Delaware outside of Philly. I love this team. I've stuck with it through the process and was obviously quite excited for the, the promise of the season and the hope that they'd be continuing to build as they've done for a few years. And, and, and I have to remind myself sometimes it is annoying as the season has been because the team has underperformed in the most frustrating ways humanly possible. The what is worth remembering is that the idea, if you go back five years, the idea that the Sixers would have won and be in position to have won fifty games, likely three seasons in a row, seemed impossible to imagine. And that we would just sure. be on some sort of uh non LeBron Cavs or you know, recent Chicago Bulls sort of situation where, or basically could be the Phoenix Suns, right? I think that would be the best uh, analogy of just a team that is constantly drafting high and never getting any better. Um, But this season has been frustrating in so many ways. And I think, and this doesn't sound like a crazy thing to say, but I think the Sixers' biggest mistake was trying to win a championship. And I know where everyone's supposed to win a championship, but when you put all your chips in the middle of the table uh, and the bet goes wrong, you end up with a team that has a massive cap situation that is with untra- potentially untradeable contracts for years to come and uh, no assets. So we went from uh, – I remember right after the Sixers lost to the Celtics in that playoff round that season a couple of seasons ago, having a – debate with uh chris mannix about whether on his podcast about who had a better future the sixers or the celtics given you know every we're sitting on all these draft picks and you know and there was a, a view that faults could get to something normal on the sixers and all of this and now the sixers basically could only had went to the trade deadline with no ability to get anyone because we have no assets and now the everyone in sixers world from the folks at the rights to Ricky Sanchez and elsewhere are basically our main thing we're rooting for is to be able to have that Oklahoma City pick from uh, convey as a first rounder instead of <laughs> instead of a mid second rounder, and right. that that's the exciting that like that's where the process has ended. Uh, and so it's been it's been a it's been a tough season, and I have watched almost every minute of every game, which is masochism at best. Well, we need to connect you with our one of our CEOs, Alex Mather, who's a huge Sixers fan from Philly. You guys can commiserate together through this time but i mean i your point about <clears throat> the uh, the theory of relativity is it's a powerful thing man i mean it is good perspective to remember that there's plenty of 
fan bases around the league that would be more than happy with 39 and 26. Now, granted, it's the, the season that, that very well might be lost, but um, they've given us plenty to talk about all season long. Dan, we, uh, we're going to let you get out here in a couple minutes, but uh, I think Joe and I both have one more thing to throw your way. Mine is going to be admittedly incredibly self-indulgent because on the one hand, I know <laughs> – I know you, you, you enjoy talking on our pod because it, it gives you a, a chance to get away and talk hoops a little bit. And then we flip it on you and, and get you <laughs> down you know the road of your expertise. But I, I got to ask you, this is just as an American citizen. The other day um, when the president was was addressing the country uh, because of your background and your story and your, and your experience, what was it like to hear him say uh, that he had no recollection – of who closed the pandemic office a few years ago. I mean, it like, obviously I, I wear all my biases on my sleeve and right. it, it, you know, it was, that's yeah, right. It's okay. It was, uh, absolutely infuriating and that ultimately you need leaders to take responsibility when they make mistakes and no one is perfect. Barack Obama was not perfect. George W. Bush was not perfect. Certainly Bill Clinton was not perfect. Leaders make mistakes. And the question is, can you, own up to those mistakes because solving the problem can only happen once you acknowledge that a problem exists and that you made a mistake and then you can go about fixing it. And it, to me, it was less about this frustration of, Oh, he's trying to get away with something and more. This speaks poorly of, or it gives me fear that what comes next is going to continue to be insufficient because we're still treating this like a PR problem instead of a public health problem. Yep. Well said. Wow. Um, and then I had one too. Mine's a lot easier than than his. Um, but I wanted that when we were talking about Philly stuff a minute ago, and and um, and Sam brought up our CEO uh, Alex, and I was there. I was like, I told you guys, I was in San Francisco, and so on Friday I spent the whole day at at headquarters, and the actually the last hour of the day of my day was actually spent with him. Um, which was really cool. And then on top of that, though, because the Sixers were in town, um, one of our Sixer beat writers, Derek Bodner, was there too. And so he brought us both into the office. And um, we had this fascinating conversation. He told us all kinds of stuff about some of the stuff The Athletic was going to be working on long term. Um, he also told us that that the leagues were heading for a shutdown. And that for sure fans were going to be out of games very soon and that he expected, um, you know, by I think – I can't remember what date he said. But basically he was right on the money with all this stuff, which was – I mean we – Derek and I walked out of the office like, what the hell does he know? We actually we actually bumped into Brett Brown on the street on our way back. Like we were going to separate hotels, but we bumped into Brett Brown and, and, uh, and Brett was freaked out because the, the cruise ship was still going up and down the coast and it was just a crazy time. Um, but the other funny thing was, is, uh, during our conversation in that office, it became very clear to me that Alex is all over Derek every day, uh, like basically for Sixer information, <laughs> like private information, like airing him out. And it was, it was just great. And so we appreciate Sam and I that Dan, you do not do that to us, even though you have that kind of, access. I do, I do do it to Derek sometimes. Uh -huh. So <laughs> like, the, I was like, I, obviously I read because I live out here. I live like on your local beats. I read the Tim Kawakami and the Warriors stuff very closely. And I read, you know, Derek and Rich and Mike and everyone who writes the Sixer stuff. And the Sixers stuff is 
they're both awesome. And obviously, I get deeper into the sexual stuff, and Derek is uh, absolutely superb. And uh, and I do like I try to I try not to leverage whatever little access I have from you know political and podcast relationships, but I, I do I commiserate with a lot of uh, Sixers Twitter, uh, and a lot of it's over some of the very smart things that that Derek writes. Listen, one of <laughs> I mean, Joe, we'll, we'll make sure to. Pass I think you probably on. agree, Joe. One of my favorite parts of this job is how the fandom um, is the universal thing that, that this sounds corny, but it's true that ends up connecting people who would otherwise not be connected. And, and on this side of it, Dan, honestly, like Derek probably gets a kick out of the fact that, that, that you mine him for info. Um, you know, I, Joe and I both have had pretty um, unexpected and entertaining connections through this job that are, you know, because of fandom when the warriors were on their run, I'm a dude who grew up like everybody else loving the, uh, you know, the counting crows album when I was, you know, coming out of high school. Next thing you know, Adam Duritz and I are chopping up fairly routinely about the Warriors. Like those types of things remind you that this is, you know, in this time when we just lost sports for the foreseeable future, that that this stuff connects us all. So that's that's fun stuff. The question I had, and like I said, this is easy. Um, I, I led the show with asking you to kind of compare um, H1N1 and Ebola responses, which – we're certainly different than the specifically what's going on right now. Um, but in terms of compare uh, any interaction between uh, the Obama White House and the leagues, and you said there was none and explained why. Um, in your whole tenure, and, and maybe there's something obvious that I'm just forgetting because I haven't really thought about it, but was there ever a time where the White House needed to, to talk to the leagues and what was it about? What could you share with us? On those I'm trying, things, like those we talked to the league, the White House talked to the leagues all the time. It was usually around helping, like working, seeing if the leagues would help push out a non-political, you know, public service message, right? Like, you know, you've seen some of these videos with, uh, you know, the first lady and Steph Curry and LeBron James about uh, eating right and exercising or, you know, voter registration or um, signing up for the Affordable Care Act or things like that. I don't know of a time where there was ever sort of a similar national security threat, but there was a a lot. Uh, I mean, a lot of interaction with the leagues because they they're an important way to reach people. And one of the things that our White House was very focused on was could you get people who had influence, particularly with young people, you know, who are paying. You know, they're it's maybe different right now, but traditionally spending less time, you know, watching the news or watching the White House briefing or any speech President Obama would give. Could you use those people to amplify important information that people needed? And so constantly working with particularly the NBA, I think, mainly because that that's a league that that were, you know, I think driven, you know, by Adam and by the players that, you know, is more interested in that sort of stuff than some of the other leagues. Um, but, but all the leagues, uh, and those, those were good relationships that transcended politics where you, you know, where you were working with owners who, you know, very likely supported Mitt Romney or would support Donald Trump later on, but it was about trying to do what was best for the country and the fans. And as always, great stuff, my friend. We thank you very, very much for joining us. This is uh, this is visit number two. If you're up for it, we'll be doing visit number three here at some point. Uh, always love having you on. Um, we didn't give Dan a <clears throat> proper introduction. <clears throat> Man, I keep having a frog in my throat. Sorry. 
we didn't give Dan a proper introduction at the top. So if folks listening somehow don't know his entire profile, co-host of Pod Save America, author of Untrumping America, which came out last month. Hope things are going well on that front, brother. Uh, former senior advisor to President Obama and, uh, and now uh, a friend of the show. Thank you very much, Dan. Well, thanks for having me on. 